Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Central Seminary Podcast. Today we have Matt Schrader with us, and um, you should know him from the previous five or so episodes that we've done, and I think we, we joked last time about are they getting tired of us, and now we have you on again. So That's right, that's right. Well, we also learned recently that uh, everyone is beginning to recognize you as the the voice of Central <laughs> Seminary. So. It's interesting. Sometimes I'll, I'll meet people and they'll recognize the voice, but not recognize me. And they'll be like, "You're the you're the voice. You're the guy." That's right. <laughs> well, today we're going to do uh, an an overview or a recap, I, I suppose you could say, of uh, the McDonald lectures that you recently gave, Matt, and um, that was you know roughly four hours. Of, of lectures, which are available on our website. I'd highly recommend you listen to those. But we're going to kind of try to condense them down, boil them down into one episode and talk about some related issues. But before we get there, Matt, are you reading anything or is your brain just fried? Oh, I'm, I'm always reading a few things. Uh, um, I, I guess there, there's two things I'm really going through. One, I just finished uh, by... It's a book by Glenn Scrivener, who's um, kind of a, an apologist on, on certain levels, and uh, he wrote a book called The Air We Breathe, which is a fascinating apologetic book for Christianity in today's world and how oftentimes people critique Christianity for uh, being anti-tolerant, for being anti-progress, anti-science, anti-enlightenment, anti-all these things. And the, the point of the book is to say all those ideas are Christian ideas. So to critique Christianity for many of the problems that people perceive it has is to actually use Christian categories to critique it. And uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating book using uh, bits of history to show how history in the West is overwhelmingly Christian. And uh, those who get frustrated with Christianity are usually still functioning within the Christian air that we breathe. That's where his mm. title comes from. It's a fascinating book. Um, and yeah, I guess that's the most recent one that I've been on. Okay. Interesting. Sounds like a good read. It is. It's, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a well-written book. You can turn the pages easy, um, but it gives you some good things to think about. And uh, it's, it's uh, something I'd recommend too. I think it showed up on Tim Challey's books of the year uh, list as well. So if, if you don't trust my recommendation, his is good too. Okay. So. Well, why don't you start off by sharing with us how did uh, church history become a an interest to you, and then how how this particular time period of Northern Baptist how 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 did that become of interest and uh, lead lead us through how that became a McDonald's lecture series. So I can explain a little bit as to my background progress to this sort of a project. I, 
I got into church history because I liked history in general. Had some good professors uh, when I went to school at Faith uh, with Dr. George Houghton, Dr. Paul Hartog, um, even Dr. Myron Houghton would use a lot of history in his discussions and uh, began to really enjoy it and see some of the connections that are there. And, the, and um, my dad, too, was uh, deep in history. He's, he's led some tour trips to England and Scotland studying Baptist and, and church history there. And, and uh, what I started to really find helpful is to explore my own heritage a little bit and to understand some of the things, uh, the, the background things for why we do what we do, whether it's congregational government, whether it's uh, uh, all church congregational singing, worship, whatever, whatever you want to say. Some of these different issues uh, I find deep in church history. And then um, I, I got into some of this area here when I was a, a student at Central doing a THM and uh, took that on towards PhD work and uh, kept going back to the 19th century because I find it exceptionally fascinating for how it uh, answers some of the modern questions and gives new pathways that really the 20th century picks up in different ways. And it, it helps me understand some of the lay of the landscape. And so that's how I got into it. Looking at Looking at Northern Baptist was kind of an easy next step as to understand my background and some of my tradition because it, it's it's really similar to what we we have here at Central in that uh, the background is uh, Northern Baptist Convention, which was founded in 1907, which was part of my lecture series. But prior to that, you had a long a large number of Northern Baptist churches, but they were not part of any one convention. They were associated on smaller levels, regional or state, uh, and schools were developing there. And the seminaries became an interest to me because I wrote my dissertation on a man who was a seminary professor and president. Uh, his name was Alva Hovey, and he taught in seminaries from 1849 to 1903. So he, he spanned a huge amount of time, and that's how I got into it, which uh, Hovey was just one man in this story that I used for my McDonald lecture. The McDonald lectures was more broad-ranging than any just one person. I wanted to tell a, a larger story of where this sort of educational method graduate level theological education came from, uh, how it was different from what was before, and how it developed to the end of the century. I think that's where more people could connect or know the history is uh, some of the later seminarians in Augusta Strong, Walter Rauschenbusch, and how some of the, the seminaries went liberal in the late 1890s, uh, early 1900s, and beyond. Uh, but my my lectures were trying to give the founding of that seminary model in among Northern Baptists, how it developed, and both both historically some of the events, but also theologically how it developed, and that that was that's where I ended up getting to to this subject. Okay, and maybe I'll just put a plug in for those of you who don't know our McDonald lectures are 
something that we have every spring at Central Seminary. They are a lecture series, so um, it, it's not always as practical and down-to-earth as, say, a, a conference. So we specifically call it a lecture series and not a conference. Uh, I remember my first McDonald lectures uh, when I had first moved out to seminary, and um, I was a new student and you know new to this seminary thing, and we had just moved to Minnesota, and I, I brought my wife, and we were both sitting there. It was so over our head. We were like, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think I understood anything. <laughs> um, it, it, it's geared for a certain audience, probably not a popular audience. But this lecture series, I think, was a lot more attainable uh, just because the content wa- was helpful and we weren't you know, pulling out some nuance of exegesis of this Greek word or, or something like that. Um, so make sure you, you check them out. Uh, also, something that might be somewhat related is an episode we did maybe 10 or so episodes ago on some of the benefits of church associations. We interviewed some men who were involved in some local church uh, associations in Minnesota, and um, that's somewhat related uh, because we get to see the development of those and how certain associations had struggles and shifts and changes, but there is some benefit there, so you might want to check those out. Yeah, that's that's great, and actually because those those sorts of de- you know understandings of church associations was one of the background stories to education. Uh, when it when American Baptists were first starting to say we need schools that are Baptist, they realized well first we need to be organized and have some some level of community and being able to help and support such a, an endeavor and so yeah that was, that's that's all really important and, and connected connected things and you're also right though that the, these are geared to be a little more academic and so. Uh, you know, I, I did write out papers, you know, five to 6,000 words per uh, lecture. So it, it was a lot to go through for sure. But I I do think this subject is very, uh, it hits us at home because we are a seminary and we're Baptists. We're in the North. Uh, we were never part of Northern Baptist Convention, uh, that, that direct connection. But yet we are, I think, even at Central Seminary, an heir of some of what went on at, at this time. Yeah, and even in talking with my pastor about some of our church history, I learned that our church that I attend in, in Waterville, Minnesota, was a part of that, uh, was a Northern Baptist church and left, I don't know, in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, th- there was a lot of, there's a lot of connections back. And uh, I started 200 years ago with this lecture series. So that that's a, in 200 years, an awful lot can happen. That's for sure. Um, so maybe I'll I'll jump into kind of where I started and where I went because just to give a a, a quick overview, I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds as we talk here, but I want to give some of the overview. So uh, in in the first lecture, I really just wanted to lay the groundwork to say what was different about seminary education and how had that how had Baptists previously done education? Why had they done education? And what were some of the important takeaways we could have from that? And I started by uh, just summarizing some of the previous methods. There, there were a few. So uh, we're probably familiar with 
a liberal arts college. Brown University was the first, although originally it was the Rhode Island College, was the first Baptist college in America. Um, some pastors would go there to get education or future pastors would. Others would do more of a mentoring model, which is you go live with a pastor usually. And this is an old model. Um, you go live with them, see what they do, learn from them. You'd often read a lot of theology books. And, and I, I would say we still do this sort of thing today on, on various levels, and it's really important. Uh, sometimes they would combine both of those. You go to, you go to college, and then you, you do a mentoring. Uh, and sometimes you'd mentor with multiple people. And, and I'd add that at Central Seminary, that's part of our MDiv curriculum, yep. where you do have to, uh, you have a pastoral internship class where you meet with, usually it's Dr. Morell once a week and talk over ministry stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that is the expectation that you're doing some sort of internship working alongside your pastor at your local church. Yeah, and, and that's, that's really important because there's nothing that substitutes for that on-the-ground uh, exposure and orientation to what ministry is like. And the, the interesting thing was hundreds of years ago, they, they would do this mentoring model sometimes because that was all they could do. They, they couldn't afford to go to school, or maybe they didn't have prior education that would allow them to. Um, but yet, um, but some did. So you had a wide variety. Uh, out of this, though, the big issue was um, Baptists wanted schools that were Baptist. They had been sending their young men to Congregationalists or Presbyterian or other denominational schools, and you would often lose them uh, to those denominations, which was not unheard of. And so they wanted Baptist schools. Uh, others uh, critiqued it in the sense to say, you don't need all of that education, which we, we hear this today. This is a normal debate. How much education do you need to go get in, in the pulpit? And in those days with population explosion, a lot of westward expansion happening in the early 19th century, uh, Baptists had a lot of needs on the frontier. And so a, a few unique uh, types of develop developing education came along. One was called manual labor schools, which basically was junior high to high school level. And, and you would learn a, uh, a trade of some kind, as well as be taught theology. So you could go work on the frontier, uh, support yourself, and also um, have some introduction to theology. Uh, a little more advanced educationally would be a literary and theological school, which these LNT models, the L was for kind of a liberal arts foundation, the T for a theology, and, and it was somewhere on a high school to perhaps college level. They ended up serving a lot as in, uh, um, college preparatory, that sort of thing. Um, but it, as these all developed, uh, theology in America was developing, and you had a school like Harvard or Yale who offered graduate-level theological education. And as Baptists were growing numerically and uh, growing in their stature in the culture, they wanted schools. And so they uh, they wanted schools that could train people uh, to be cultural leaders. And they realized a graduate level sort of education was what was needed. And so that's that's where I, I go. And, and I, I tell some of the history of how that developed. There's a lot of background in missions work in the United States with Baptists because uh, there was cooperation to do missions work 
And shortly after that was started, education gets attached to it. And it, it has a unique development. The first school that was attempted was called the Columbian College in Washington, D.C., which I found to be a fascinating uh, bit of history. It, it really, unfortunately, never took off as a theological school because uh, of some financial issues, uh, general support issues. Um, there was more attention to the college as opposed to the theological section, and, and it, it didn't take off. Um, what did take off was a, a, a school in the Boston area called Newton Theological Institute. Um, it was formed in 1825, and uh, it was the first graduate-level Baptist theological school in America that lasted. So they, they started teaching in 1825. They were formally um, chartered in 1826, but that, that's when they, uh, you could say, Baptist seminary education in, in America really gets its start and develops from there. Um, but part of what I wanted to show with this is that there were, uh, there was something unique about what was going on, not just that it was a, a graduate-level education, not just that it was Baptist, but th there was a unique theological development happening at the same time. And uh, by the time I get to my second lectures, that's really where, where I'm going is to show some of that. But uh, some of the takeaways, even from the early part, that I wanted to show was that Baptists had recognized – uh, that they needed to train men to be able to take on certain types of leadership a little more advanced, uh, be able to speak to issues of the day on a deeper level, and and advanced education was a primary way to do that. But again, they wanted Baptist education, and that was really important. Uh, and support along the way. Uh, you had to have some sort of denominational support. So they, they saw this need, they met the need, and from there it developed. And the, the final three lectures I, I set up as following the first generation, the second, and then the third generation. The first generation, to give just a, a very quick summary, would be um, from about that 1825 to about 1850. And I, they start Newton, which I've mentioned. They start a school in Hamilton, which is central New York. Another fascinating story there. Um, the second generation... Uh, are those who come on the scene after 1850 and they take some of the foundations that the first generation had laid and they um, develop it in new ways. They uh, they start writing theo theological textbooks uh, as opposed to the first generation had really given more of a theological method. The second generation had put uh, taken that method and built a theology out of it, which part of what I wanted to argue is it went a lot of odd directions, a lot of progressive directions theologically because this method was progressive. Um, and then the third generation goes in a lot of divergent ways, uh, and that's the, the last quarter, last third of the, of the 19th century into the 20th. So... Um, that, that's how I set it up. Once you see the, the unique new educational development of seminary or graduate level, you then have, I, I, I trace the first, second, and third generation, at least in, in broad strokes, is where I went with it. Okay. What, what is your, uh, maybe if you could just tell what, one story, what is your favorite story from some of these, the, the time periods yeah. that you studied? Um, 
Yeah, I tried to put some of those in. Just uh, I realized a lot of this history was brand new to people, and I, and I get that. So I tried to throw in a few things where people could relate. You know, at the, at the end of the century, uh, I, I mentioned the, the University of Chicago gets started, and people say, well, big deal. And Well, if I can connect it to John Rockefeller, who is giving a lot of money towards it, people can start identifying, well, I know that name, so I can connect it. Um, some of those stories, I uh, let me give uh, one that I found interesting with that very first school, the Columbian College in Washington, D.C. Uh, it did not stay a Baptist school for very long. Um, it uh, lost its Baptist identity probably within a decade of being founded. Today, it's, it has developed into the George Washington University that's there. But uh, its first... Uh, class that graduated was in 1824. So this is the first kind of big attempt here of a school in the new national capital. Um, the The people who were present, I found fascinating. The, the president of the United States was there, James Monroe, um, the uh, secretary of state. You know, you, you have men like uh, John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay, John Quincy Adams. All these men are there. And what I found fascinating is, as I read some of these very old histories talking about it, they all made a point to say there was also uh, the French general, the Marquis de Lafayette there, who, who's very famous uh, of the time period, and he happened to be at the, the first graduation uh, of, of all things, which were not very many people who graduated <laughs> uh, at this school. It would have been uh, a dozen at most, about that much. So it was it was a small group, and... Um, that was an interesting story. Uh, I told a few other ones just, just to connect people, but, uh, that was one that I, I, I really enjoyed one that's perhaps more, uh, ministry minded. And I've had a few people actually come up and talk to me since then, uh, is, uh, the story of Nathaniel Kendrick, who was the primary figure at the founding of Hamilton, uh, Hamilton Theological Seminary uh, in central New York. Uh, he uh, was kind of the father figure. He was their first theologian. Uh, at the end of his life, though, he slipped on the ice and severely hurt his back. Uh, this would this would have been, 18, I think, 1844. Um, and he had to go get his back checked out and actually they had to transport him from central New York to New York city to, to meet a surgeon, which was an excruciating trip. If you can imagine, uh, there's obviously no airplanes. Trains are not an option uh, to that part of the country at the time. And so it was, uh, carriage rides, steam ships, uh, um, well not, um, carriage rides and like, uh, canal ships down to the to New York City, which would have been terrible on his back. And they, they did a back surgery to see what it looked like. And it was unanesthetized because they didn't have that and extremely painful. And they found out there's nothing we can do. So they transported him back. And for four years, he convalesced basically at home. Occasionally he would come out, but most of the time he was bedridden. And part of the, the thing that I find fascinating is he was still influential in the school, which by this time uh, had uh, kind of a college preparatory school. They called it the academy. It had a college itself, and it had a seminary. So there are three levels. And he 
uh, got to know all the students because they would take turns coming in his room with him uh, at all hours of the night. He usually had somebody there, and he would talk with them, pray with them, read scripture, sing together. Um, so even though he was convalescing, even though there was really no uh, heavy medication that could take the pain away, he could hardly sleep because of the pain for four years. Wow. They, these students would come in and just spend time with him, which, which I found really, really fascinating. Um, many of these schools would, or many of these students later on would talk about this experience. Some of them would say he, um, they were converted while being with Dr. Kendrick. And some of them would say later on that for the first time, their eyes were open to what they would call it the benefit of heavenly communion that he had taught them. And uh, it was a four-year process before he finally passed away. But um, uh, these men uh, cared about the uh, those people who came through their classrooms. They uh, were very pastorally minded, and uh, this was a great example of that. Wow, that's a great story. So why don't uh, why don't you talk about some of the the conflict that uh, erupted? in uh, the Northern Baptist and some of the, the hot points for, uh, for conflict and t- contention? Yeah, so um, I tried to highlight a few of those. There's a, there were a couple with the first generation. Um, in the 1840s, you had two that I, that I highlighted. One was uh, a short-lived school called Western Baptist Theological Seminary, which was in the Cincinnati area. It... Uh, was a school founded to be a service to both North and South, right as Northern and Southern Baptists were splitting over the slavery issue. And it was a big background issue to the school as well and sent them kind of definitively in their own directions. Northern education went one way, Southern Baptist education another, I think. Um, In the North uh, at Hamilton, they... Uh, experienced a major controversy where many wanted to remove the school to Rochester. Uh, it, it was a, a terrible example of uh, personalities conflicting, of um, kind of political intrigue surrounding th- ministry, <laughs> which is, is, is awful to say, but that does happen. And uh, what you end up getting is a new school in Rochester in 1850, um, so that, that was one major controversy. But really the big thing uh, going forward was the development of more progressive and then liberal theology in the last uh, third of the century. The end of the second generation going into the third generation, um, you have uh, a, a, in some places a slow move toward liberal theology, in other places a, a fast move. And... Part of what I tried to, to tell people is some of this is well-known. Um, uh, Jeff Straub's book on the development of theological liberalism in, in Northern Baptist life is kind of the definitive explanation of, of when it really made that switch to be liberalism in the schools and how it was dominant in the schools. But prior to that, there was slow developments. You get certain... Um, glimpses of of more liberal thinking um part of what my lectures were trying to do was to show 
in very particular ways where it had previously shown itself. And, and I point to theological method as the big issue uh, in, in the first generation, second generation, and through the third generation. Um, how they uh, built their theology, how they approached scripture was all very important. And, and I think laying the groundwork for even further theological development into, into liberalism. But that was the big thing. And of course, the big controversy was in the 1900s where it kind of explodes into the fundamentalist modernist controversy. But I, I didn't really get into that. I tried to say once that comes, it's really a new context. Once in 1907 is when the Northern Baptist Convention is formed. I think that's a new context. Uh, prior to that, seminaries uh, did not have a one big organization that they all had to report to in the convention. Uh, they didn't. They only had to appease their constituency for their school, which was usually very a, a very small regional area. You had Newton in the Boston area, kind of New England area. You had Hamilton in central New York. They had to appease. You had Rochester in western New York. Uh, you had Chicago, um, w- where you you first had kind of the Chicago Baptist Union School, which develops eventually into the University of Chicago. And then you had Crozer in the Philadelphia area. So you had regional spots. Uh, each of those slowly on their own began to develop liberal thinking. But that that really takes steam in 1880s, 1890s, into the 1900s. And that liberalism uh, really uh, led to controversy. But um, that was a little bit beyond where I, I wanted to go with the lectures. Part of what I wanted to say, though, was even in the early days, some of the choices they made theologically were laying the groundwork for progressive theology to develop. Uh, one of those that many don't know, and I, I tried to point out, was from the very beginning, when Newton in 1825 was founded, they self-consciously, very aware of what they were doing, said, we do not want a confession of faith. And and not just to, you know, not saying, hey, we want a the second London or something. They didn't want a statement of faith. They didn't want doctrinal uh, boundaries to be given because they wanted a certain theological and exegetical method to be in place. Um, and that sort of progressive idea was there from the beginning. None of these schools in the 19th century had any confession or, or doctrinal standard. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the 1900s and you get Northern Baptist Seminary in Chicago that, that actually has a confession of faith among Northern schools. So um, theological liberalism, the slow development of it, that was the major controversy for sure. Okay. So what are some of those specific issues and what are some of the takeaways for us today, certain doctrines that we really, really need to um, affirm and hold to? And are, are there some cautions that you can give us based on uh, the development of, of some of these things? Yeah, so um, I, I tried to give a few kind of observations at the end of each of the lectures and then also kind of a look forward. I called it horizons, kind of, hey, this is, these are some things we, got, we have to notice with each one as we look forward. Uh, I can't summarize those here because you really need the whole lecture to understand where they're coming from. But at the very end, I did try to give a few hypotheses uh, of, of, of where 
Baptists uh, or what Baptists today can learn from from some of this history because I do call it the building of a Baptist tradition. They they were trying to do something new. It created a, a large movement, um, and and the tradition was what is you know it was Baptist seminary education. Baptist by conviction, seminary level or graduate level um, education. Uh, that was a need that was there. Uh, they this was the solution that they had built, but the problem was. Uh, that you need more said than just that. They didn't want a confessional statement. There was no theological, I call it no theological North Star that they could point to and say, that's going to give us some sort of boundary. And what ended up happening is theological development, progressive, liberal, uh, many different directions. Um, and so what I tried to say were some takeaways is first off, um, I called it the Baptist seminary hypothesis that that their idea to have a, a Baptist graduate level school was good. And I, I stand, of course we're, we're in a Baptist graduate level school right now. And I, I think it's a still a necessary thing. The point or the reason why they did it was because there were major issues of the day that needed deep thinking about and good preparation for, and to, to cut corners on that just was not getting it done. Um, the The idea uh, to simplify education was was not getting it done. Uh, it was. I, I I tried to argue that if if you try to simplify the education or make it quicker, easier, it forgets that um, the issues of the day don't get any easier. And so less preparation means you're less prepared to, to answer those. Uh, that that's a key lesson. Um, the other one was if you outsource education to other groups, which is not always a bad thing, but uh, it, it often means those those don't come back who, who go and are educated there. And that, that's understandable because um, uh, if you push questions to others and if you push education to others, those who go listen to them will, will be taken by them. And, and that's that's a, a completely understandable thing, but um, a real issue for Baptists still today, I think. Uh, the, the second kind of big thing I tried to point out was the whole issue of surviving. All these schools at one point had to figure out how to survive, whether it was financially or theologically, where are they going to stand, um, that sort of thing. And the in the Baptist context, historically, the struggle for survival is always intertwined with personalities, uh, we, we we saw that several times in it, uh, theology, and of course finances, um, th- and many other things can go in that. Uh, I think there were some lessons on finances to get into um, that uh, are interesting because if you want to look historically at, at these schools in particular, they either had some sort of denominational machinery supporting them, or even if it was a, a smaller locality, uh, those pastors, those churches supported it. Um, or in unique places, there was a wealthy benefactor. Uh, uh, the Colgate name, the Crozer name, the Rockefeller name, big big dollars. I mean, Rockefeller was the richest man in the world at the time, and not everyone knew that, but uh, he gave unbelievable sums of money to, to Rochester and to Chicago. Um, some of them developed a good endowment, and that's how they got to a place of... Uh, 
kind of security and others had just that loyal constituency. And so one of those four things, whether it's denominational support, a benefactor, an endowment, or a loyal constituency, you had to have something like that. Um, That was the historical precedent. Uh, So that was one thing to learn. Um, But the theology one, I think, is probably the big one. Uh, they didn't have that North Star. They, uh, For a time, they would all point to a method that they were following. I don't think that was strong enough to hold. Um, but th- they made this, des- this purposeful decision to have no theological standard. Um, and I, I think that's that was a mistake. They assumed a certain type of theology would automatically come out of it. That just was not the case. Um an implicit reliance on this sort of theological consensus just wasn't good enough. You need, you need explicit theological boundaries of who you are. Uh, I think that's a key lesson too. Uh, but a second one uh, was the, the theological method connected to the theology was theological method matters uh, over and over again. I, um, this is a fascinating part of 19th century. If we were to dive even deeper than what we can do on just in a lecture series, theological method was such a big issue of the day. Um, and it was the background issue as to how theological liberalism comes about uh, and many other developments in uh, theological method matters. So th- that's where I, uh, those are some of the lessons I gave, but I, I gave a parting word to say, Hey, uh, I'm speaking to a seminary, a group of people. Uh, some of them are pastors. Some of them are former students. Some of them are current students. Uh, some of them are just interested people. And uh, I, I wanted to end by saying that graduate level theological education that's Baptist is is needed. It's necessary. Um, we have to hold kind of the educational standards and the theological standards both um Neither can be lessened. Um, both of those are important. Um, and, and I said, I, I think it's a worthwhile task. It's a noble task. It's a necessary task. And we all ought to, to do our part to support, uh, to make it as, as good as we can. So that's, that, those are the, the particular applications I tried to get to by the end. Okay. Well, that's been very helpful. Yeah, and I know uh, it's hard to give an overview of four hours condensed, you know, in this sort of way. Uh, I I do um, have a kind of that first, second, third generation historical grid to help understand this. I also gave a couple of my my doodles uh, that we put into the the handout. So if if you go on the website and you see the lecture outlines, you can also see some of these images that I. I've drawn to try to connect generations and people and schools. And uh, if you can have that in hand as you kind of listen, actually, I think that's a helpful thing too. Yeah. Great. Well, before we go, um, why don't we ask, is there anything that you just want to give a word of thanks to God for uh, pray, praise him for his works this week? Yeah, that's, that's good. I appreciate that you ask this each time uh, we do it. I, uh, Recently, I, I guess uh, I've been struck lately by the, the issue of repentance and just uh, how important it is and perhaps maybe a, a bit convicted that it's not a more regular or a uh, familiar practice. You know, I think God gives us these regular times of uh, 
our regular disciplines we ought to follow to help develop us spiritually. And and repentance is one I've been uh, convicted more on lately to to do more. Uh, and uh, I, I I would give praise to God that we can do that, that He hears and He forgives and He restores and uses us despite that. Uh, it, it's an amazing reality that that God through His Spirit works in this way for us and um extremely thankful and very aware of that lately well great thanks for sharing that and thanks for your time today and all the work and effort you put into this uh for us all righty thank you jared next time on the central seminary podcast you may have a very unhealthy flock if there's not a lot of shepherding care Good shepherds smell like the sheep. Ministry is people and people are messy. We often connect success with, an, um, with a number of people in the congregation. I, I don't read that every year, but it's on my list of books that I should read every year. We have to be really, really careful that, that we don't fall prey into people being projects. You might have a church that is doing well numerically, but how are the people? Your personal call to ministry was not just a call to theological understanding. People are one of the best parts of shepherding ministry. I I don't know any pastor that would agree with that Uh, in theory. Success is not determined by quantity but it's, it's determined by the quality of health in the community of believers. You do have to exposit the truth. You do have to be faithful in that regard from the pulpit. Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary Podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders for Christ-exalting biblical ministry. Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, centralseminary.edu.